why not consider joining us on Patreon? Even at the basic level, you'll get all our content ad-free, excluding show videos, of course. You'll also get access to the Sonic Talk pre-show and a few exclusive videos. In fact, we just posted the Game Changer Audio Motor Synth Mark II Extended Director's Cut, which has an extra seven minutes of content. But if you join at the upper level, not only will you get that, you'll get exclusive video. Uh, in fact, I think we posted an Osmos Friday Fun Extra Bits. There's also extended playing for the Super Gemini video we recently posted sample sets and don't forget you also at both layers get onto our discord so why not consider joining us in this time when ads are a bit harder to come by just helps us keep doing what we're doing thanks very much for watching Hey everybody, welcome to this Sonic Talk uh, Christmas special. Uh, I'm talking today to uh, a man who's who's probably uh, involved in the industry that we all know about, but we probably know very little about, and that is Conrazo of Tuned Global. And this is, uh, you're there in uh, Australia, I guess it's late at night. I'm, I've turned the lights down low here, <laughs> even though it's in the middle of the morning for me, just in sort of homage to your time zone. How are you, Con? Yeah, I'm great, Nick. Uh, and you're right, uh, night here. I just got back from a few weeks uh, in, uh, I'm going to say, sunny London. I, the weather was a heck of a lot better <laughs> there than it was here at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, but no, great to be together. Okay, so I, I mean, it's, this is the, the premise of this sort of of these the series of talks is really just to kind of get behind some of the technology that drives our industry. And as we know. Streaming is uh, the, the, the streaming services. You know, most people know them: Spotify, Apple Music. You know, there's 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 a proliferation of them, and they all charge roughly the same sort of amount, and we all get access to enormous amounts of uh, of music. In some ways, it's become commodified as a result. But you're involved in some of the what? T well, just tell me what Tune Global does. Let's just, t just tell me a little bit about what your what your company does first. Yeah, I mean we're um, a media platform, uh, predominantly music, but we're not just music. We're also audio books, um, podcasts, video, live video, but um, mu music's really the core of what we do. And we provide companies with the technical platform to execute whatever it is they're doing. Now, that could be that they need uh, our many APIs to be able to go and produce something that is Spotify-like, or it could be that they want a turnkey app solution that we provide that enables them to get into market really quickly, or totally sideways, it could be for the med tech industry or for the gaming industry, and how do they actually use music in those particular spaces? So we're really broad and have an opportunity to really connect to a lot of use cases. So it's super interesting. So I guess I mean on a uh, on a uh, let's take a kind of a fairly basic use case level. Yeah. I'm uh, um, I'm a I'm a. a, a a continent i uh, represent a, a maybe a mobile phone carrier or something and i would like to provide some kind of music offering as part of a sweetener to get people to to sign up to my sure. my service you know and so particularly i mean i think the other thing is is to, to notice that perhaps you didn't mention there is your 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 one of your key things i mean I know you work globally as well but your key things is kind of also to create these sort of more localized markets so for instance continents where music doesn't necessarily fit the spotify model those artists are not taylor swift and they're not ed sheeran they're they're going to be pushed out to the margins of those sort of services and hard to find you provide a kind of more uh 
um, focus platform. And so, so are you involved in like you store the data, you access the data, you you kind of yeah. deal with the yeah. metadata, recommendations, that kind of thing? Is that how it works? Yeah, absolutely. To get into a little bit of the detail, um, we have all the different music labels that you would expect uh, delivering to us from major music labels to independent labels. Currently have about uh, 130, 140 million tracks on our uh, system. And so we each of those will deliver to us either in an industry standard way for the larger players and um, or in perhaps not an industry standard way for the smaller players in that market. And so we have to take all that metadata and then we have to be able to normalise it, make sense of it and create uh, audio codecs. How do we handle images, all those things? How do we uh, uh, disambiguate um, songs so that for search it's better, that you don't get the same song appearing 50 times, all those sort of items are critically important. The question, though, is how do you do this at scale? And, Mm. um, you know, that's something we've worked hard at over, uh, you know, many years, and we're really in the third iteration of what we would call our ingestion part of our business, our ingestion platform. And um, and that's able... We can, we can go deeper, but that's able to horizontally scale as, as broad as we need it. So we've built a system that really... Um, no matter how fast we're getting deliveries of audio files, uh, we can process those and make those available um, super quick. And one, uh, maybe just one of the things that for the audience that's really changed in the music industry, really even over the last 10 years, is 10 years ago you would have, as a platform, got a release from a major artist probably at least a good week, maybe two weeks out before it was available. Mm. Um, there's a lot more risks and dollars that are going into marketing these now. So there's a lot of caution around making them available before minutes before. So literally we may not get a release until half an hour before it's got to hit the streets for customers. So you have to be able to handle that. And, you know, a customer wants to be able to see it, um, the minute it's available. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, I, I can relate to that to a degree because we often get, you know, embargo news where we have to kind of make sure. And sometimes we get it plenty of time in advance. Sometimes we might not be prepared to sign, say, an NDA because yeah. it's it, it's just too much hassle with the, all the legality. So we'll just go, OK, send it when it's ready. And then you go, <laughs> go. But I mean, there is a human involved in us. So, I mean, it's cure- what. So essentially, you know, I'm, I'm trying to kind of uh, think of parallels. So if I'm if I'm uploading a track to, I don't know, Bandcamp or any yeah. of the kind of distribution platforms as a creator, you know, I'm providing things like album notes, a bit of artwork, maybe yeah. an ISRC code, if I've got one, uh, all that kind of stuff. Your system is designed to sort of bring that in. So if I, how, how would I, if, if I, my music was to end up on your platform, presumably it would be through an aggregator like CD Baby or one of those kind exactly. of things. They would offer your stuff as, a, you know, another end point where I could publish my music. So you're effectively, uh, sorry if I'm re-explaining it, but I'm just trying to sort no, of totally. pick it apart. You're, exact, you're exactly right, Nick. Um, we get we get it from um, various aggregators that would make it available. Um, and we do have ways, though, I should be clear that, especially, and you mentioned earlier, that we do have a little bit of a hyper-local focus. 
and that's absolutely true. We have clients that are really broad and global and they do, you know, they compete at those global levels. But we also have a lot of clients um, in places like uh, Greenland, Ethiopia, Ghana, Nigeria, uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia that are very, very focused on local content and their local artists, right? And right. we are now providing ways that they can actually independently, our clients, so you mentioned before, maybe the telco is our client, right? That the telco can actually make a platform available for independent artists in that market to upload directly. And we get that content as well. So we can facilitate that. It doesn't have to go through one of the global aggregators. It's all about, for us, how do you make this service really valuable to end consumers at the end yeah. of the day? I mean, end consumers are going to drive it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the, the, the pitch that I got from um, your PR company, uh, the people that you know said, would you like to talk to Con? Yeah. Usually these things come to wash over me a little bit, but there was a re some really interesting facts and figures about how just the sheer scale of streaming data, you know, the canon of digital content. Yeah, I think there was what we were talking about, you know, it's a, a 25 million tracks equals a roughly a petabyte, which at S3 prices is 3,000 bucks a month, right? So, yeah. I don't know, say Spotify could be something like, well, we, what was it, 600 million tracks? That's what, 30, 30 petabytes? Something. I mean, it's just uh, 24 petabytes or something, the massive amounts of data that you're dealing with, right? Or yeah, that the absolutely. Industry is dealing and, with. and I guess there's that data side on that end, but even just processing the metadata that's coming in from some of the labels yeah. uh, for your audience here, which is mainly technical, one of the metadata files might be a gigabyte of metadata that we actually have to process for a single uh, release. So really, that, and so it's it's an intent. We 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 say to people who are trying to uh, get something new in the market, you really don't want to be doing this part of the business. You want to be using an organisation like us to do it because it's almost impossible to build the scale unless you are a Spotify or an Apple or, or someone like that. Um, on, on, the, on the data side, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's also important to understand that every single product that's ever been delivered to us from a label and a label might give us a product and then give us 100 updates to that product. And we have to right. store those entire 100 updates as well. So you so have when version you start control as well, what, right, yeah. And audit trails in case something actually, you know, went wrong in a process and you can sort of pick out and say, well, there, there was the metadata that came through um, that described what needed to occur. And the metadata that's really critical here is release dates, territorial rights. And, uh, you know, if, if you think about it, um, for us, we, uh, let's say on 100 customers that were available in 100 territories, and if there was 100 million tracks, well, if you, if you multiply all those things out, that's the amount of rights that we actually have to manage on our system, uh, which is okay, billions so that's a, and billions of rights. 
so that's a separate issue. Say for instance, I mean, I'm just a use case for that. Say, say, you know, I don't know Sony give you a. I'll use Taylor Swift again, just because yeah. she's got the. Isn't it this week or a recent week where she had all top ten singles in the US Hot 100, <laughs> which is an amazing fit. I mean, fair it play, is, John. But it so it's an easy case. So, but some of those. Let's say, for instance, she uploaded all those ten to you. Two of them weren't allowed to be released in England in that format for whatever reason. Those are the sort of rights. So then, you know, your English customers would see either an alternative track or maybe the artwork had to be different. As we know, quite often with tracks, you know, there may be content that is culturally sensitive, like the title of the song or the lyrics need a change. So you're having to manage those kind of routings as well. That's the sort of thing that you offer, right? And I would love to say it's as simple enough at that rights level, which we call master rights, which is the person who's actually singing the song uh, and the label gives you the master rights. But there's also in each market publishing rights, which is who actually wrote the song. So we actually Mm. have to manage the mix of both those rights to see what someone actually listens to. So I often say, and... uh, If someone's watching this that's from the video industry, they're going to kill me for this, right? But I often say, if I knew what I was getting into at the start, I definitely would have started a video business rather than an audio business (laughs) because the complexity of audio is just, um, you know, it there is it goes deep. It certainly goes deep. Mm-hmm. So I suppose I mean you know what if I was to play devil's advocate here I would say okay I I I'm understanding that there's a complexity to the data and the the sort of back end of this that is that is going to incur a certain amount of costs and as we know you know streaming the bigger streaming companies are always sort of moaning about how how they're not making any money I mean although I did look at the Spotify figures and they did make 12% <laughs> increase over last year I mean when they say not making enough money is that their profits aren't big enough to for their shareholders still making plenty so but how so your role in the middle actually could be quite pivotal when it comes to redistributing the uh the rights back to the musicians who played on the tracks or the the songwriters or whatever i mean is that something you're involved in or are you just kind of feeding that back out to the organizations that handle that is that i I guess the question is 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 there a opportunity for you to sort of advocate a, a fairer model, which is what a lot of creators are looking for in 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 this kind of uh, streaming world. Yeah, uh, it's a great question, Nick. And I would say that one of the really great opportunities we have is that we deal in a lot of these quite unusual markets that we were talking about before. And uh, in these particular markets, often often we're dealing with a repertoire that is independent music, which means that we really can have a role in how we can put more money into local artists' pockets, if you like. Right. You know, one of my passion projects, we're still working on getting this off the ground with an Australian um, uh, client, is to really be able to have an Indigenous music service that's available in this market that actually is putting money back into Indigenous Mm. artists in this country, right? And so to be able to facilitate that, yeah, we, we, we play a great role in doing that. We're obviously a commercial business, but we really are passionate about how do we actually get the business to grow in general. Now, in some cases, let's be clear, we our clients got a vision and what they're trying to do and we can't really play with that vision we're providing the tech but in a lot of other cases um we're really providing a whole web of 
companies that can support something different. And uh, there's, I think it was only last week, um, I was actually in London speaking at the um, uh, African uh, Music Summit uh, yep. for, uh, at uh, PRS in London. And um, uh, we were there with a client that's just launching a new service in Ghana called Jamamo. And their whole focus is hyper-local um, artists for that particular market. So we've really yeah. been able to work closely together with them about what does it mean, what are the payout models that you could use, uh, how do you bring perhaps more fairness and equity to the process for artists. And... In their case, they've made a really specific decision at the moment to limit international content so that, you know, as soon as you have international content, you're going to find a lot of the money goes to those particular artists in traditional models. Now, we're obviously seeing a lot of people experiment with other models such as Spotify and Deezer lately. And that's really interesting experimentation. And we're sort of waiting to see what those outcomes are as well. Uh, in terms of, you know, artist-centric models. It's interesting. I mean, the headline I'm thinking of, specifically with Spotify, is they just sort of announced this kind of edict that they're not paying anybody who gets less than a 1,000 plays, which is... And and for those who don't know, I mean, at least as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, the way that it works with uh, Spotify, as as an example, is they take the top 100... Uh, artists earning kind of figure out what the percentages are and then they sort of almost distribute the bulk of all of it to the way that those plays split out into you know if they get if if taylor swift gets a 100 million plays and paul mccartney gets 70 million plays you know it go it, it it's percentage that way all those little guys who get very little their um revenue is sort of accrued into the upper artists which just seems inequitable um, and hard to justify, I suppose. Yeah, and, and, and I think the challenge for the industry in general is how do you make, and you're absolutely correct in how that works right now, Deezer for a while, as, it has, as, as some others have, have experimented for what we call a user-centric model, which means you as a subscriber, let's say that uh, $5 of your subscription was going to artists to pay them out, and let's just say that you only listen to one single artist all month, in a user-centric model, that whole $5 would go to that particular artist, right? Which is a way that the artist can actually build a fan base and start to actually benefit from those fan bases. The challenges in the industry across each of these models is how they get abused and manipulated by other methods. And it, that's always the challenge. How do you actually build enough controls here so that um, someone's not leaving something on overnight and building up a whole bunch of streams that occur? Yeah, like we've, we we've seen that. Along... We, yeah. Exactly. We've seen those things happen. But there's other ways that that's manipulated as well. So it is definitely a trade-off um, within these items. I'm I'm not sure that I've seen what I think is the perfect model yet. I'm really glad to see that there's experimentation. From my perspective, I, I do want to make sure that the small artist has got a chance to make a living because I think if they don't have a chance to make a living, we can never help them become big artists. Yeah, 
I would totally agree with that. I mean, you know, if you cut off the feeder effectively, what's the point? I mean, you know, we should also we should also point out that there are other ways. You know, that like the Bandcamp model, there are models where you totally. just kind of promote your own music, and 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 I think the thing the thing you know that. I think there's ways for it to be more creative and imaginative. And I think the issue that we suffer with is because because these big players have so much power, whatever they decide, we're sort of at the mercy of. I mean, I, I totally understand that that's not your tech, that you're just the sort of, you're the, the, the glue, I suppose, in, in many respects. But having said that, there's still, there's you know, you... You you still have sort of algorithmic discovery, playlist making, totally. and how how do how do also how do, you know because some of these systems work on if you like this you'll love this. Is that something that you also operate? I mean, in which case, how do you kind of keep the the stuff that pe- may be great but is less popular from being pushed further and further out into the margins until nobody's listening to it? it it's such it's such an ongoing research and development part of our business. Right, um, how to get how to get that wow moment for the end user that they go, that's fantastic. That's what I want to discover, and you know, there's certainly um, some really interesting things lately with AI and how that can play a role. But even without AI in that process, we uh, analyze music as it comes in to understand which music is similar to other music. But then we also analyze cohort behavior as perhaps more important than the music itself. So what cohort are you similar to and what Mm. is that cohort listening to that you may not have yet discovered? And can we make that a more interesting way for you to discover music rather than just putting you into a bucket of genres? We, We don't love the bucket of genres because it's just too broad and it, it, it's almost like the social media feed, right? Whatever news you've started to listen to, it reinforces that news. Whereas, yeah, echo chamber, yeah. Exactly. Whereas we do want to expose new music to you. So uh, we've probably got three projects happening at the moment. We already do suggestions. Uh, we all also, I should say, do incorporate with third parties where we're able to bring in a lot of metadata from other third parties that um, enrich the data um, and make those suggestions perhaps even more relevant or uh, bring cultural items to those elements. So um, in the US, we operate a number of services that are really for very young kids. And so that music is analyzed to make sure that it's actually appropriate for those children. Um, doesn't have, you know, sexual violence, uh, cigarettes, um, other elements that might be sensitive. So it it is a really complex topic to say, you know, how it works. I can't, I mean, it's, it's and in many ways, it's a sort of terrifying responsibility because ultimately, you know, we, I don't know if you remember, in the 90s, you end up in the situation where, you know, everybody used the same Pro Tools rigs the same pro tools uh, audio interfaces so you ended up with this sort of a whole strata of music which had the same kind of top end the same dynamic range the same and it became very generic and the danger of algorithmic work is you end up with a sort of mean and so or or ultimately you know a a kind of the herd rather than the edge cases and the edge cases are kind of where the interesting stuff lies and then if, but that surely requires human interaction because otherwise 
you know, the machine will just kind of go, well, this is whatever. Or, or ultimately, it's kind of the same deal where, you know, it's like, well, if we were just looking for the stuff that was popular, then everybody would be watching, you know, pornography, essentially, because the machine would just say, well, people seem to respond well to this without knowing what the emotional content or the impact is. Absolutely. Um, I think from our perspective, earlier in the year, we purchased a company out of Sweden, which was uh, called Pacemaker. Their focus was really about DJ applications for music that uses really advanced algorithms. And, you know, we've been able to retain that team and make that really our informatics team that looks at how to actually develop these relationships between music to actually make discovery um, deep. And um, and so, and I think it goes back to the question that if someone's starting out to try to do a music service today, can they achieve all these items? I I think it's unrealistic to do that, and that's why we really do consider ourselves to be a platform rather than just a technology provider, because all these items need to work in harmony to actually produce something extra. Now, that's not to say that many of our clients don't have a special source that they put on themselves and it's their own IP and create something really interesting out of that. Um, and uh, like I said before, you know, it, we, we come across so many really interesting ideas uh, almost every day that it is, um, it's never boring, right? It's more <laughs> just, okay, so how do we now help you execute this? Because uh, it could be just slightly sideways to uh, something um, that's the norm. And also, I suppose the thing is, the only way you know if it works is by kind of really experimenting on live data. I mean, you can't really try it with you and your mates. You know, you need 100,000 people to see what the difference is. And that's kind of... Ter- I mean, that's the sort of thing that we're told. You know, I must never work on the live website, but I often do, just because I want to get it done quickly. And then I go, oh, I broke something, and then I have to fix it. But you, you can't... You're essentially, you can't have... You don't have that luxury. So it's almost like a kind of... It's a, it, it, it's a it, it's a meta in a way. You have to think about things in an abstract level. Absolutely, and you know those experiments are really important in how you capture that information from those experiments and say, did the users actually get value out of this? Was it something that was that really impacted them? I think that's more in the suggestion side or the interfaces or the ways that you may present. Um, deeper and more interesting discovery for people. And uh, and for us, it really is about that engagement level more than just, okay, here's the music files, go do something with them. It's how do we help you do add value to that question. So I suppose in a way with the kind of localized or uh, not, not, sorry, or jo- not necessarily genre specific, but specific, yeah. uh, essentially now streaming services could be considered in a way as being record labels. So, I mean, there's no reason why I couldn't start a Sonic State streaming service, totally. talk to you about what I want and figure out how I filter it or I um, I manually kind of go, well, these are the artists that we want to include. We want some curate, you know, some curation. There's no reason for that. I suppose the difficulty then becomes is, you know, what's the minimum you can charge for a subscription and how many subscriptions can people handle? People are getting a little bit of subscription fatigue so essentially, you know, they would rather make it simple and go, well, I just want to buy at the top level at Apple or at Spotify. 
but then what they're getting then is just too much stuff. So how that's that's how do, how do we kind of counteract that? It, it it does really vary by where you are in the world. I should say first off. So you know the concept of a subscription is probably going to be less valid in Southeast Asia or Africa, where you're going to have a low percentage of subscriptions, and you're probably going to have services that you either consume that are ad based or they come bundled with. Uh, telcos or other people that are right. providing you those particular services. So I do think it varies tremendously at that level. Um, we're definitely seeing a lot of uh, clients that are doing, in essence, what you just said. They're actually uh, carving out a niche market and then providing a service to that niche market. Um, I, I don't think the niche market minds paying for the service if they're able to get value from the service and get something that is really uh, interesting for them in that particular market. Uh, if I go through again, this is quite, perhaps not quite niche, but if I go through the kids services that, uh, that we run, uh, one in Germany and one in the US, uh, they both run, um, you know, really good and successful services because parents are willing to pay for the feature set that's provided to those users, uh, sorry, to those children and the protection that's provided to them for, right. for content. So I do think the go-to-market plan and the idea that you have for that service, you've got to do some heavy lifting on that idea. Yeah. What is it in that idea that really does fit an audience that isn't just a me too, right? I don't. I think it's difficult to succeed in a me too without some incredibly deep pockets from a marketing perspective. <laughs> but if you can really do the heavy lifting on the idea, um, and the idea is, you know, there's so many ways to split that to to, to go deep. There is it just music? We often ask our clients. What's the center of your world when you're actually starting to think of a music service that you're trying to provide? Is it really artist centric? Is it song centric? Is it something different that's in there? You know, in the past we were providing a service for UFC, which was very much fighter centric. And it was really about the music that these fighters actually loved that was part of that service. So it can be really different in that area, but what is it? And I think if you've got a good idea, Good ideas have the yeah. greatest chance to succeed, right? As it's interesting. I, I suppose in many ways, you know, I mean, it's like when I, you know, I kind of, I ask my Alexa, you know, to play me a track and it says, I'm sorry, you haven't subscribed to this particular service. It's like, okay, so I then have to go. And, I mean, essentially, there's almost needs to be a top level aggregator that will go, right, everything you're subscribed to, I'll just find it amongst any of those. So there's a sort of almost like a, another layer because yeah. that's the thing that, you know, it's a pain, isn't it? It's like, well, I've tried this. It's like having to use more than one search engine for different topics. I mean, we, none of us can be bothered with that. It's too granular. It's too difficult. It's interesting, though, isn't it, uh, Nick, that when you look at, say, video platforms, we've almost got used to the concept that a video platform, by and large, has a lot of exclusive content and you'll go from one platform to another or you'll subscribe to many of them, or you'll drop some in and out over the months. You know, if you mm. if you want a budget, etc. Whereas music, to a large degree, up until now, has been that every service 
really has by and large similar content and it's differentiated more by its user experience in there. Now, you, you might say, well, SoundCloud's different because it actually allows quite a lot of different content to be up there. And that's absolutely true. Um, I think, you know, if I look at the future, I do think with, at the moment, if you look at the top, all the tracks from the biggest providers out there, you might have a couple of hundred million tracks. And right. most of the statistics that are talking about the explosion of both independent music and perhaps generative music in the future has that going to about 600 million. That's most of the predictions, right? So within 600 million, do you or I really want to service with 600 million tracks? I would say that's just going to give us another 400 million of clutter, right? So yep. how, do we, how do we start to split these down into services that have more targeted formatting? In a way, Apple has done that with their classical product. Finally, um, yeah. That they... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fine, and and but that, but it's a good example of saying I actually right. need a different sort of experience for that than my traditional Apple Music product. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, that's an easy delineation to make. I suppose so. I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah. I guess you could do that. But then once you get down to genre specific, then you go subgenres. Then you're into kind of like, oh my goodness, you know. I mean, it's like there used to be a lot of labels, yeah. uh, but you'd go to the record shop and you'd browse them and go. This is the one I want, you know, because I've heard about it or whatever. You know, it, it's still an amalgamate. It's still an aggregator, effectively. So, yeah, interesting. Um, don't, don't you love it? You know, when you speak to an audience, uh, when you speak to an end user and you talk about a label, there's just no concept of what is a label, right? It's just the yeah. artist that I like. But I think in the industry we can get so focused on the labels um, that it uh, sort of takes us away from... We're just looking for music here. It's almost yeah, back, yeah, back oh, to the true. record shop. And okay, well, all right. Let, let's come at this from a, let's come at this from another angle. I mean, in in you know streaming and you know it all started back when when people were pirating stuff. You know, and it because it was easy and people could almost do it by feeding a CD into their computer. It was, you know. So music then became more of a commodity necessary or, or has become more of a commodity because it's a service, like it's a utility that you pay your monthly fee for. How do we re-inject value and um, and kind of ownership in that? I mean, I noticed Taylor Swift has actually, is she, is she, has she just or is about to pull her catalogue off Spotify again? Because she's just not... She's not up for it, you know, and uh, I mean, and I admire that because, but she's uh, she's able to because she's got critical mass. People know who she is, but for the rest of us, yeah. we don't have those kind of luxuries. So how does how do we how do we encourage the kind of re the revaluation of creative output because we're in danger of everything becoming just sort of generic and you know worthless. In which case, people won't want to do it, you know, anymore because there's no, you don't get a buzz because it's there's no differentiation between that and your water bill. To totally, and I think some of it, you know, I I, I heard an interesting um, uh, definition of a super fan a few weeks ago, and it was someone in the industry, and they said. Their definition of a super fan was someone who would actually pay a subscription. That was a super fan, <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting, right? I that that's a lowered bar from what I thought a super fan was, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would consider a super fan to be someone who's going to uh, have their hard earned, uh, you know, 
in, put invest that into an artist in terms of either following them or uh, going to concerts or buying merch or doing some other elements to that. I do think when you look at the differences between those times, as we know, it's become more from the album and the full works that was created by that artist to now this, you know, uh, much more granular uh, song rather than anything else. I do think that the the most interesting things that we're seeing is where there's really deep fan engagement and platforms are building really deep fan engagement, right? And I think then that produces something that is really tangible with the end users. And they're using that as other ways that maybe you can, um, I guess, give money to that particular artist or uh, perhaps follow them in a way that puts more money into their in their pocket. Uh, perhaps these items like Spotify is doing at the moment might have impact there if you can build up your user listening base. I definitely think that's one uh, item that I'm following, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say, "Oh, that's the magic bullet," because I think that would be really uh, unwise. But I do think um, it's worth. It's a worthy idea to follow and see. Does this actually make a difference to those services? Um, I still think people will pay for music. I I think yeah. people will pay a lot for music, but you have to. But we've taught them for so long that music is cheap and coming back at that again now is um, is just something that's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to change that balance overnight. I, I suppose the thing is, is as we've seen, there's been an uprise in the experience, you know, concerts. That's why co- concerts are, 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 are probably, I mean, even though it's much more expensive to tour now just for various reasons, yeah. they are still the primary for many, uh, many bigger acts are the primary revenue generator. And can because can, you can play, you know, over a, the tour of a summer world tour, you can play to millions of people and give them a unique experience. I mean, I wonder if there's some element of that because, I mean, touring... While it is a thing, I mean, I'm sure lots of artists would probably prefer just to nip downstairs in their pyjamas and bash out a, a couple of songs for maybe a select or a, a, a randomly picked number of people who subscribe to uh, their streaming service. I mean, that would be exciting, you know, so almost there's a golden ticket aspect to, to things, you know, which don't... Absolutely. And we've done, I mean, we, we, we in our applications and our services, we allow live um, uh, events to occur. And certainly ah. we've experimented through the Pacific Islands with live events. And the artists have actually, um, you know, they've put together like multiple artists for live events, uh, not available on replay, just live uh, in that process. And they've been really successful to bring people into a platform. So, again, really differentiated in there. Um, we've experimented with maybe something that's a bit of a dirty word at the moment, but we've got a white label solution in Roblox. And it's very much an experimentation to say, can you actually do some concerts in Roblox that have maybe some really interesting value, especially, again, in some of these niche markets? We've seen the huge stuff that's done in that market, but how do you actually uh, get to um, a, a a bigger market there? I think that's an interesting platform because you've got this very young audience that's now becoming 17 to 23-year-olds, right? And so they're actually used to that platform, but now they're actually people perhaps with more spending power and not the kids Mm. any longer. So it's also... uh, um, 
It's experiments, though, on our side, right? Like, you know, it was the darling, obviously, two years ago or a year ago. You know, it's dropped off a little bit, the, the question about um, metaverses and what's happening. We still think yeah. it's going to be a big part of the future. But, um, okay. but yeah. Interesting. Um, wow, I, this is this has gone in directions I wasn't expecting. It's fan- fan- fascinating to hear about how that works. But I'm curious. So, you know, if I what what's the data flow? You know, a track comes to you, the metadata goes into the database. Where does that track live, and how does it get back to the listener? What's the sort of rough process of that? Yeah, yeah. So when it when it comes in, and I guess this is where there's really interesting opportunities um, in the future for how we develop these items. Like if you think about in the past, and I'll get back to music, but if you think about the images for a sec, uh, the images, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we would generate images in a whole bunch of different sizes and then make those available for what was being shown. Uh, These days we don't do any of that. Uh, We actually just store one image and we have a whole lot of systems that generate images of different sizes on the fly so that if you're looking at it on an iPad or a phone or whatever, you're always going to get a great experience from that. Now, that hasn't been true just yet for audio, right? You still have the concept that you're creating audio files and codecs in advance and then they're actually being uh, drawn in uh, and used. And we provide, uh, you know, from low quality to lossless formats, which means that you're now starting to actually store a whole bunch of items. And if you want to go to 24-bit, then obviously that explodes out again. So when it comes in from us, we get all these different assets. Our systems will automatically, we talked about, we've actually got a case study on AWS that people can go and have a look at and check check that out. But uh, we will horizontally expand to however many um, processes we need for how much content is coming in, right? So that we can get it done very, very quickly. We get that metadata. That metadata for us, uh, traditionally in the past, that would have gone into database systems. These days it goes into a whole lot of serverless architecture uh, on our system because obviously scale is critical for us and being able to deliver at scale. Uh, Those audio files are generated. We have a very advanced QA system at the end of the process that makes sure that everything that was supposed to be created is created and is available and everything else that's there. Uh, It's secured, it's encrypted, it's done, other elements are done to that service. As an end user, when you request it, Ultimately, it's delivered from a content delivery network that is getting it from one of our actual uh, cloud-based servers. And so that would be geographically, that. you know, if you're in the US, it would go to the US resource. If you're in Asia, you exactly. might get the Asian re- Exactly. So, so, uh, but but yeah. I, uh, sorry, I suppose this comes back to the initial kind of pitch for this interview, which was, you yeah. know, you ultimately that amount of data just sitting there waiting yeah. to be accessed is expensive yeah. you know it's start i mean obviously you get yeah. economy of scale to a degree but it can't yeah. I, I worked it out i think 600 say if you were to have all 600 million tracks yeah. whatever their quality you know you'd be talking about 800 and almost a million dollars a year in in just data uh, totally. which sounds like a lot of money but i suppose if you've got enough users it's it's a piffling amount but for many people yeah. you know that sort of number how do how do you you know, yeah, you had some ideas yeah, for strategies we, on how to how to deal with that. 
Absolutely. There's different ways that we manage the different type of storages that we use across different providers and cloud providers. Um, and so that we optimize our costs. We're always looking at how to optimize our costs. Yeah. So, you know, there's obviously traditional S3, but in some cases you can't use traditional S3 for that type of volume. So we use other providers there as well. And, uh, and in some cases, uh, certainly AWS does provide you different storage classes that you can, uh, that may or may not have value. They don't always have value for us. So it's always a bit of a use case piece on there for the AWS people that might be listening, right, in there. Where we're spending a lot of time at the moment is looking at decentralized storage and decentralized storage, both from a security point of view um, and also from an availability point of view and ultimately from a cost point of view. So we're early in those stages with some experiments, but we're definitely looking at that and saying, how do we actually use decentralized storage in the future to actually store all these assets? So from a layman's point of view, uh, S3 is Amazon storage. It's cloud storage. It's like a big hard drive in the sky. It's kind of like Google yep. Drive. It's Blackblaze. It's all of these kind of areas. That's where you access data that's just held in the cloud. We use, uh, we used to use a lot of S3. We decided it was actually really expensive. So we went to yep. uh, Google Drive because we've got yep. a big organization with lots of accounts. It makes sense. It wouldn't make sense for what you do necessarily. Yep. But So decentralized means... You'd have an office in Pasadena with a server farm and a bunch of disks in it on the ground that was yours, or it's or no, is it? What, how does what does that mean exactly? In a true decentralized, it could be that a snippet of an audio asset is actually on your computer at your house, right? And it's encrypted with that snippet, and um, it also exists that same snippet in multiple other places so that you have redundancy in that system. It's encrypted, so on its own, it has no value whatsoever. So it's actually tremendously uh, uh, durable in terms of its security, right? But also, it actually makes use of resources that may be available at a lower cost. Okay, now, those okay, hold on. So, yeah. so you're basically, I mean, what you're basically saying, and and it's, I mean, you're not like the first person to think of this. Essentially, you're using totally. my com my computer as a sort of staging post and storage for somebody who might might listen to the same track who's in the same country or in the same city, and that would be pulled out of my computer and put back together again by your, by the service. Is that is that essentially? It, it's not. It's not even. It's not even based on the track basis. There's service providers out there and companies now that are starting to build these decentralized services that you can use. And they're, and you're absolutely right. They're just people that opt into this process, and you will make some money from the rental of your space, right? Ah, um, okay. And so it actually puts money back into people's pockets, right? But the cost of that, you already have the cost of the storage. So it's not like the cost is in addition. So that it does potentially provide really interesting models for the future. I would say there's definitely a lot of businesses that are moving to put their data on various decentralized models. Um, for us, it's still very much an experiment. But it's an mm. experiment that's, that, that is important to start to do as, these, as the 
repertoire moves to this three times what it is right now. Yeah, sure. If you don't do that, if you don't do that, then really the only solution is that you're going to have to start to charge the people who are delivering to you and the artist for storing their product um, and perhaps there's a threshold to that. And if they don't get X amount of plays, they're actually paying for it. But it, I Oof. think it has to be on one side or the other. It can't right. just continue on infinitum. Um, we did see, you know, for a time, really severe drops in um, storage costs. You know, those drops are still occurring, but not at the pace they were before. Um, I'm sure there'll be a breakthrough in technology where we may be able to see that again. Um, so you know what this space is like in tech. You know, you can't stand still. Yeah, it, well, it, it's still, yeah, it goes up. But that's really interesting. Yeah. So in a weird kind of way, it, it, and well, we're not quite there yet, but we're almost back at the point where it's like I've bought and I own and I store my own music collection, except it's not – it's it's more of a, an amorphous – cloud of stuff that some of it might be mine but it's just generic data that the industry is is using to decentralize exactly and i think ultimately you know it is the concept that globally if there's all this storage out there that's not being used is there a way to actually uh be able to um utilize that without necessary and i think that makes sense from a bunch of different areas, whether it's mm. environmental or whether it's commercial. There's a whole lot of pluses in those items, right? Um, I think traditionally the question would have been one of security and that's definitely where you don't want to draw the music file from your own system, uh, where right. there's always the chance that it's gonna be, it can be taken. Yeah. It's very interesting there. I mean, that kind of shift, I suppose the thing is, is it's sort of the danger is it's like, well, if people accept it, then we just we we're it's le it's less cost, but it's we're not necessarily, you know, not you, but the, 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 the people might not actually pass that on to the end users in, in, in those terms. It just becomes a norm quite quickly and we just accept it. The idea of distributed computer. I mean, I suppose I remember there were yeah. there were projects that where you could just say you could install an app on your machine and uh, some kind of space program that was running a research thing could come and use some of your CPU cycles overnight to calculate where the asteroid's going to go or whatever it was, you know, for creating large, large, large models. Yes. And it's a similar concept of that, except it's got a commercial basis rather than a research basis, I suppose. Yeah, and I, and I do think, you know, and you're absolutely right, you can't control what happens at the end of the process. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we do know that most services, the vast majority of their revenue is going out to licensing, right? Yeah. Uh, with with master rights and publishing rights, that's, that's taking up a, a huge percentage, right? Perhaps around 70% of their revenue. So they do have to be smart about what they do with the additional 30% to be able to produce a profit at the end. And I'm not necessarily talking about the super companies out there, but the companies that are trying to emerge with something different. Mm. And we do want them to be able to have a platform that they can succeed on, not something that 
ultimately we just have a single view of the world. And I think music's going in that way. If I look at music at the moment and I look at the type of companies that are approaching us right now, I would say there's never been more niche products being discussed than there are right now. Whereas before right. it was like, it, before it was perhaps someone trying to do a Me Too, whereas now it's actually someone trying to do something different, whether, as I mentioned, it's um, genre-based or independent-based or whether it is something in med tech that's totally out of the norm and is, uh, it, people are doing you know, amazing things in that space. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think also, we've, like you say, there, there's just so much unknown. And obviously, you know, the rate that audio and, and music is being uploaded into this amorphous music catalogue that whoever it is, you know, just the, uh, the the total amount of stories is getting larger and larger and larger. And it is quite interesting that there, there will ultimately be a critical mass. But, I mean, I suppose it's nothing compared to... I mean, video must be incredible you know much higher because there's even more of that i mean just the data rate for per minute is even higher right it, it totally so you know we do store a fair bit of video on there on our system as well and obviously you know video generally you're going up to 4k in terms of what you're making yeah. available so you've got some really big you know storage costs on that side too i guess one of the items we haven't talked about nick is that if you think about all the DSPs at the moment and other companies that are actually getting these deliveries that are trying to do it themselves, each one of them is effectively storing exactly the same thing. And I yeah. think this is where we think that consolidation and being able to, you know, whether it's companies like us and, you know, that there's a lot of positives to say that just doesn't make sense in the music industry. Why is everyone storing something? 200 times right so there yeah. is probably a lot of opportunities beyond the high tech items that i spoke like a central about central library about right. how to consolidate that better yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely well, that kind of makes sense i mean mm -hmm. in, in a way that sort of there's this uh spirit of um uh, uh of uh collaboration i i, I take like right. horse racing Horse racing and betting on horse racing as an example, where all these little bookies that you see, they're intercommunicating, they're laying off bets to each other so that the whole, nobody gets the full responsibility of a big win. You know, there, there's a sort of base level, it's sort of spread out. And I suppose in a way, it's a similar kind of concept. But I mean, we're talking, we're talking, you know, VHS Betamax levels of uh, com uh, of of uh, uh, collaboration here across uh, competing co companies. That is a big ask. That is a big ask. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. And I think you know, I, I'm not sure that we'll ever get it at the really top end. But I think if we if we take away those top maybe two or three there, then I think that collaboration can exist because at the end of the day it will actually save those other services significant amounts of money every month. And then you can talk directly to the checkbook, right? And I think you have more chance of collaborating mm. on that process. Yeah, That's an interesting idea. And uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, so even more collaborative aspects. Wow. Okay. So, uh, so where, where, you know, in, in uh, five or 10 years, you know, where do you think uh, the music industry is going to be is it a positive vision you've got for it or is it a kind of uh, do you think more people are going to be creating or do you think there's going to be just a lot more noise well geez that's a great question i i think certainly you know i guess 
whatever you call the creator economy is the, is definitely a new economy. I mean, at the moment, we're obviously seeing it with things like UGC and things like that, but we're starting to see that expand into music because of accessibility for people now to get their works actually shown. Mm. I do. I don't necessarily think that on its own will grow the music industry because your point is the critical one about how do you find those nuggets amongst that music. I think ultimately technology is going to play a huge role within that. Uh, I know there's a lot of, you know, uh, sensitivity and trepidation around AI at the moment, but I think that as those models expand and enable us to be able to pull out interesting related items out of a large repertoire, we can actually present those to users in a way that they can actually look at them and go, oh, I really like this and bring it out of there. But I think that's even more critical than it is now just because of the volume that's there. Um, so I think on those levels, it absolutely will continue to evolve. And I don't think music's going away anywhere um, uh, from being, you know, one of the things that just joins people together around the world. I think the interface question is a much more interesting one over the next 10 years and how will we choose to consume music. Mm. You know, will we, will we be consuming music through VR or AR type of systems more so than out of a phone? Will the phone form still be around in 10 years? I would imagine it's going to dramatically change and that our music consumption is going to have to change with it, right, in a lot of ways. Um, I would say the interfaces that we're presented at the moment are very uh, single-faceted in interfaces, but where you're, where you're seeing the future is that interfaces are really morphing for what I like and what I want to do, not just the right. content but the interface itself. So I think there's a lot of areas that are really exciting. I, I, I can't imagine a more exciting time to live than right now, to be honest, right? And, um, and, and it's great, you know, just for where, where it can go. I think the commercial model is the most difficult item. And we do, you know, we're seeing uh, companies like uh, Beatbread, which are really interesting companies that are actually providing funding to artists rather than artists have to always go to a major label. And so that's a really interesting one of a new company, a relatively new company that is actually starting to be able to provide accessibility to money for independent artists. So that whole framework, I'd expect to see that change dramatically over the next 10 years as well. Will major labels exist in quite the same way? No, because nothing will exist no. in quite the same way. How how will they evolve? I'm not quite sure on that. It's interesting. I mean, it's almost like, you know, you have VC, uh, venture capitalists, uh, investing oh. in individuals <laughs> through funding an artist going, I'm going to take a bet, which is what labels traditionally used to do. Yes. So just go, hey, we, we saw this guy play live. Our CEO is really excited about it. He's prepared to put a million dollars into that and make it happen. And because the return could be so great, you know, so it's, we've already seen this, haven't we, with the proliferation of sort of reality based sort of talent shows where people are plucked out of 
obscurity, whether it's manufactured or not. And then so but there's an initial investment and then the return is made, which is I mean, it's always unpleasant to sort of think about music in those terms. But ultimately, you know, it is a product, but I'd rather it was a product than a commodity. And I think that's probably a yeah. valid def, def, uh, differentiation, right? Absolutely. Totally agree. Con, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I don't want to take up more of your time. I know it's late where you are. You'll probably want to sit on the sofa and drink some of that lovely uh, Australian Shiraz or whatever it may be that, uh, that, that ends your day. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate the time. Uh, have a great new year for everyone who's listening to this. And, uh, uh, yeah, just keep, keep, keep supporting those local artists and, uh, you know, it's our passion and hopefully it's yours too.